Hello there. Thank you for inviting me into your eardrums. This is episode number 464 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm your host, Sarah Wendell, and my guest today is Ariel Zebrak. She is the author of Guilty Pleasures, which is a new book in the Avidly Read series from New York University Press. Her book is an academic look at popular culture and the concept of the guilty pleasure, which, as you may imagine, is relevant to my interests. This is one of those conversations that made my brain go all jiffy pop with so many different ideas, and I hope you enjoy it as well. You can find Avidly Reads Guilty Pleasures wherever you get your books, and of course, I've got links in the show notes. I will also link to all of the books we talk about and where you can find Arielle, her CV, and links to all of her writing. Hello and thank you to our Patreon community. If you have supported the show with a monthly pledge, you are making sure that every episode is transcribed and you keep the show going. Hello to our newest patrons, Tessa, Susan, and Saul. Thank you for joining the community. If you'd like to have a look at our Patreon, it is patreon.com slash smartpitches. This podcast is brought to you in part by Native. Sometimes it rains on your plans. Sometimes the line for coffee wraps around the building. Sometimes the price of something you wanted goes up. Sometimes life stinks. But the good news is you don't have to because Native has your back and your armpits. Native cares about the products you put on your body. They are all about stopping the stink the right way. That is the Native difference. You probably already know about Native's legendary aluminum-free deodorant, but have you tried the body wash, the toothpaste, or their brand new mineral-based sunscreen? Yes! Native now has broad-spectrum SPF 30 sunscreen for your face and body. It is lightweight. It absorbs quickly. It smells great. You can choose between coconut and pineapple or unscented. You can even mix and match to build your own personalized product bundles with three of your favorite scents and keep them on rotation so you have something for every occasion. You can stay fresh and stay clean and protected from the sun with Native by going to nativedeo.com slash trashybooks or use promo code trashybooks at checkout. Get 20% off your first order. That's nativedeo.com slash trashybooks or use promo code trashybooks at checkout for 20% off your first order. This podcast is also brought to you by Headspace. If you have tried meditation before and felt like it didn't work or maybe like you were doing it wrong, have a look at Headspace, especially if mental health is part of your self-care plan this year. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Headspace is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the occasion, Headspace really can help you feel better. Overwhelmed? Headspace has 30-minute SOS meditations for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down meditations that Amanda and their members swear by. And for parents? Headspace has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Since I started using Headspace, my day goes a little easier when I start with meditation. And I've meditated nearly every morning. I feel pretty great. I also love the focus music collection in the Headspace app. I love the variety and I love the curated playlists. Headspace is backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule, anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash Sarah. That's headspace.com slash Sarah for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash Sarah today. 
This podcast is also brought to you by Ritual, a vegan-friendly multivitamin delivered to your door that's formulated with high-quality nutrients and bioavailable forms that your body can actually use. I like knowing what's in my vitamins, and I like knowing what is not in my vitamins. Ritual does not contain sugars, GMOs, major allergens, synthetic fillers, or artificial colorants. I also like knowing the supply chain of each ingredient, which is not something I'd thought much about. And the supply chain is printed on the packaging. There's also information about how some ingredients were developed to be vegan-friendly. I like that it doesn't make me nauseated, and as soon as I finish a bottle, hello, a new one has arrived on the porch. I can start, snooze, or cancel my subscription at any time. Now available for women, men, and teens, Ritual Multivitamins are scientifically developed to help support different life stages. Get key nutrients without the BS. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off during your first three months. Visit ritual.com Sarah to start your ritual today. I am so excited to share this conversation with you. On with my conversation with Ariel Zebrak about guilty pleasures. First off, thank you so much for having me. It is really a pleasure to be here. Um, my name is Ariel Zebrak. I am a writer and an English professor. In my writerly life, I've published humor pieces at places like McSweeney's and The Toast and more think PC type stuff um, in the LA Review of Books and The Baffler and some other places. I usually write about gender, sexuality, and popular culture. Um, as an English professor, my training is in the literature of the American 19th century, and I also in that vein focus on women's popular culture and sexuality. Um, and I teach students. I teach classes in 19th century literature, gender and sexuality theory, African-American literature, and women's literature. So you personally, before we get to your book, by the way, congratulations on your book. Thank you. Uh, you have a very thorough history in romance that I did not know about. And I I, I am always curious to talk about um, the examination of romance from an academic perspective. It, mm -hmm. There's a lot to interrogate and there's a lot to really examine in the different portrayals of many different aspects of human experience inside romances. But often um, I will come across criticism from someone who I can tell almost immediately has no fluency in the genre. They're looking at it from a very outside perspective. And you have a very deep knowledge of romance, no pun intended, <laughs> from several different perspectives. You were an editor and then you moved to academics. Yes. Wow. <laughs> How did you move from editing to academia? It's a very funny story that. And it's also funny, like how I got into romance publishing, which is, so I was an English major as an undergrad, and I was a very, very snobby, unenlightened kind of English major where I really believed in the canon and thought that these books that I was told were the most valuable and best books ever written in the world were the most valuable and best books written in the world. And it never occurred to me that the things that I read for pleasure were like worthy of being objects of serious inquiry. Oh, yeah. And so when I graduated, I mostly wanted to move to New York because I wanted to move to New York. And so I thought, what can an English major do in New York but work in publishing? Um, and I wanted to work at like a highbrow literary imprint like Knopf or Viking and find like the next great literary novelist. That was sort of my dream. Um, and I interviewed all over publishing. I kept getting rejected, kept getting rejected. And it's funny because the reason I kept getting rejected, I kept getting the same feedback. They were like, I don't think you really want this job. Oh, ouch. And I, I thought that that was funny because I was like, I know I really need a job. But yeah. in retrospect, I think they were right. That that was not what, what I was cut out for. And then I got 
to this interview with this really incredible uh, romance editor at Valentine named Linda Marrow. And we immediately clicked. And I said to her, because I had been reading, I liked a lot of like YA, like women's fiction, real classics. Like I read a lot of L.M. Montgomery, The Babysitter's Club, Judy Bloom, all of that stuff. And I told her in the, in the interview, I don't really know a lot about romance. And she said, I just, I think you'd be a perfect person for this job. So we became very, very close. She hired me. She handed me a copy of Whitney, My Love by Judith McNaught and said, read this. Oh, that's a good start. Uh, Oh, damn. Yeah. (laughs) Wait, was it the original version or is it the edited version? No, the writing crop contained therein. (laughs) 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 It's all there. And I was like, yes, I love this because it really is just like grown up versions of those books that I loved and also of the 19th century novels that I loved. It was like... It is the same. It just has the sex in instead of taken out. Behind the door. Right. Yeah. Right. So I was like, what could be better than this? And then, you know, for three years, I felt that I was sort of living a dream because I was reading romance novels all the time. And I was going out to fancy lunches and learning a ton about the industry and meeting really super lovely people and going to RWA. And it was great. But then I think I sort of realized that I wanted to be a writer myself. And that working in publishing was not, it takes up so much of your time. There's not a lot of extra because you time, no. Yeah, you you don't do the reading and the editing part in the office. You take that home and you do that after hours. So it's really like your entire life is consumed by this job. Yeah. So I thought that it would really be a change of pace to go to grad school, which is also not, not a good decision in that way. But um, Well, that's like, yeah, that's like just, you're still eating pie. You just changed flavors. Exactly. Yeah. So I went to grad school to study, of all things, modern poetry. And then I had this really incredible um, female mentor who studied 19th century women's fiction and taught me about all of these authors I never knew about before. And I was like, no, I want to study that. And then it's just it's so funny to me that I ended up writing this book. and, And this became my area of interest, because in some ways I've been trying to like push it away my whole adult life but it's what I want and it keeps, it keeps coming back to me. And there's a repeated message that, that like, and you talk about this in the introduction of your book, that if you enjoy these things, there's something wrong with you. You are the things that you consume, especially now with how much of consumption is public facing with social media, the things that you consume represent you. You don't want to be represented by things that you know are shameful and silly and fluffy, and you should feel guilty and ashamed of them. Yeah. And I think that a lot of women who love reading and especially young girls who love reading, who become women who love reading, mm-hmm. have like adopted this identity as like the bookish, nerdy, smart girl. Yes. Like, like that is sort of how you are. Right. Can't I confirm. mean, we all identify with this. You're like the person in the lunchroom with a novel, yeah. the person at the playground with a novel on the bus with a novel. And that becomes your identity. And then when you get older, you're told like, it's not bookish or smart to read these kinds of books. Yes, you 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 need to read a very specific kind of book to have the cachet of being the nerdy person. Right. And so my identity was very much wrapped up in like the only thing of value about me is I'm the smart girl. So I need to be reading different things if I want to like validate this understanding of myself as the smart girl. And it took me a long time to realize, A, you don't need to have any kind of identity to be allowed to live your life and take up space on this planet. You yeah. can be whatever you want. You don't need to justify yourself. 
And B, it's not not smart to like any particular kind of book. Very true. It is very self-diminishing and self-defeating to try to conform to an external standard of what is smart when your own thoughts about the things that you love are just as intellectually valid, especially if the things that you love are the things that other people don't take seriously, because you're going to see the value in them. Of course. And also so many other people are too. Oh yeah. And probably those other people are going to have identities that are more like your own. And I think it's definitely no coincidence that the very smarty smart things are the things that have been like created and sanctioned by the people with all of the social and structural power. Oh yes. Very true. Very, very true. Among my favorite things that when I, when I meet somebody and I tell them what I do and I tell them what my job is and that I run this website about romance novels, sometimes I get this almost um, resetting from the other person of, oh, so I can talk to you about the books I really love. Like if you say you love reading, then you have to, you know, you have to rattle off the titles of the books that are important. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's, let's, let's talk about historical fiction and historical romance. And how about, um, you know, vampires? You want to talk about those too? Because we can talk about that. So what will readers find in your book? Tell us all about your book and what will readers find mm-hmm. in your book? What readers will find in my book is readings that I think are fun of a lot of different kinds of media. So I talk about um, 19th century popular fiction, which is a huge interest of mine, and some of the juiciest moments in some of the juiciest novels. I talk about romantic comedies ranging from My Best Friend's Wedding to Bride Wars to Father of the Bride to... uh, I guess it's not really a romantic comedy, but one of the most fun parts of the book for me to write um, was about the film Ghost. Because once I started thinking about it within the framework of the book, where I sort of piece apart the ways in which we understand the world through a set of desires that are predominantly white and male, I realized how messed up it was that this entire movie is about an African-American woman against her will having to facilitate the emotional and sexual relationship of a dead white man and his wife. It's really quite blatant when you look at it from that framework, isn't it? Like I was reading that section thinking, holy shit. (laughs) Yeah, this is really fucked up. Yeah. So part of what I want to do, I mean, here and in my other work is take things that we're all really familiar with and love and not tear them apart and say these are bad or we shouldn't read them or consume them, but say like, you know, here's why we might have such a fondness for them. And here's also how they're informing some notions that we have about the world that we might hold to be self-evident, but are actually really constructs of the culture that we're seeped in. Yes. It's, it's sort of the perennial reappearing argument, are romance novels feminist or are they codified um, reinforcement of patriarchal standards? And my general thought is always, well, both, actually. They are both. And sometimes one is stronger and sometimes it's the other. But you can't create something within a patriarchal structure without reflecting the structure in which it was created, no matter how subversive it is. You have to have something to subvert first. Exactly. And I mean, another thing I talk about a lot in the book is how the way that a lot of femme subjects experience sexual desire and the way that sex scenes are written in romance novels also speaks to exactly this paradox that you're describing because part of what is erotic or you know sexually fantastical or arousing to us is the simultaneous acknowledgement of the fact that we live in this patriarchal society and we do feel dominated by male figures and male ideas 
um, and the ability to be sexually like to experience a sexual release from that. Yeah. So, you know, I talk a lot about the dark uh, hero as a figure in romance and um, other genres as well. And I think that that's a really interesting place from which to think about this question about the feminism of romance novels, because it doesn't make you a bad feminist if you have a desire to fantasize about um, a strong male figure who's maybe at times dominating or domineering. I'm very like on board with the movement in romance away from rape scenes, mm-hmm. but I also understand why they were part of the formation of the genre and why they were there mm-hmm. and why I think women still, I mean, I still see like, especially in like fictions for young women, something that I wrote an article about that kind of prompted me to write this book is a Netflix movie called The Kissing Booth. Mm-hmm which is about a real, like a very classic dark hero figure. This guy who like rides a motorcycle and has anger issues and is constantly like, there's a scene where he punches the hood of his car and says to the heroine, get in the car, Elle. And she gets in the car. And I'm like, no, in real life, never get into the car with that guy. But yet I also understand why this is pleasurable to consume and watch because she then gets to have like very tender and loving sex with him. And so I think part of the fantasy is like taming the structure of oppression through the ex- the cathartic experience of sexual release with the very figure of that oppression. It's like a Beauty and the Beast yes, thing. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, your book is called Guilty Pleasures, which of course makes my inner meerkat sort of sit up and go, oh, yeah, sorry, um, you, have, you have released the bat signal towards me. Um, mm-hmm. I am fascinated with this phrase itself, and I wanted to ask you about it, because there are a lot of folks who get very irritated with the concept of a guilty pleasure. And one of the things your book is sort of skewering is that at its absolute foundation, and this is part of your introduction, femme-coded topics do not have to be drenched in shame because you enjoy them. Um, now, and I want to say that as the owner of a site that talks about trashy books, I appreciate very much this duality because I don't actually believe that romances are trashy. I was just sort of, right. I mean, when we named the site 16, 17 years ago, uh, we were trying to reclaim the idea like, yeah, we're going to talk about, you know, those books that you call trashy. We super love them. Come on over to the hot pink palace. So what is your take on the phrase guilty pleasure and what it describes? I do not feel guilty about consuming anything. No, me neither. <laughs> um, <laughs> not a bit. Like, for example, I watched a show last night called um, Murder House Flip, which is a Roku original show about home makeovers of houses where murders occurred. Okay, when this episode comes out, a thousand people just <laughs> paused to go Google this. Like, no one is listening at this moment because everyone has paused and they are Googling that show right now. Oh, my gosh. I saw that come by on the screen and I'm like, yes, yes. thank you for sending this to me. <laughs> but I mean, the things about this show are, A, they just renovate the murder house and the people keep living in it. So <laughs> the murder, like... What's changed? You still live in a murder house? I mean, I have a lot of like questions and complaints about this show, but I loved watching it. (laughs) And I will tell anyone that that's what I did last night. I mean, I think that the whole concept, exactly as you said before, like we are not what we consume. So it doesn't say anything about me in particular that I really deeply enjoyed watching. I mean, the episodes are seven minutes. So just bear that in mind when I tell you that I think I watched eight episodes last night of Murder House Flip. But yes, I don't think that says anything about me as a person. So I don't feel any guilt 
about watching it. I think no. if, if anything says anything about me as, as a person, I am proud that I am proud to say that I have watched Murder House. Uh, yeah. Well, it's like if true crime and house hunters had a baby. It's a beautiful concept. I wish they would develop it a little bit more. I have some thoughts if the people who produce Murder House Clip are listening into making this into a longer, like 30 minute or even hour long episode. There are other elements I'd like to see enacted. But the point is, I don't, when I say guilty pleasures, I don't think we should feel guilty about anything that gives us pleasure, especially if we, if inclusive of we as people who experience any kind of structural oppression. I think that People who are in non-dominant identity categories especially are entitled to whatever gives them pleasure because, you know, the everyday is so difficult. And Uh, I think that, like, seizing pleasure from a society that tells you your pleasure is not valid or worthwhile is a really important revolutionary act for people to undertake. That being said, my definition of guilty pleasures is stuff that gives you pleasure because it allows you to sort of play in the space of your own feelings of guilt. So I think that we feel guilty about a lot of things that are outside of our control, our class background, our race background, our gender background, the desires that we have, the inadequacies that we feel. People feel guilty about the shape of their body. Mm-hmm. Like you, you can't control that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that one thing that women's fictions are really good at doing is depicting that guilt. So I talk about like the one of my favorite novels as a kid, the Judy Bloom novel, Dini, um, where the main character has scoliosis and has to wear a brace all the time. And it's really a novel about her physical shame commingled with her emergent sexual desire. And I think that so many romance novels do this so well, where the heroine is coming into her own sexuality in a way that is as much suffused with shame as it is with desire. And I think that it's really cathartic for us to read about shame and guilt. So to me, it's like, if you took that part out, it wouldn't be as pleasurable. So a guilty pleasure is one that allows you to experience your guilt alongside your pleasure. I will be right back with more of my conversation with Ariel Zebrak. But first, a thing to tell you real quick. This podcast is brought to you in part by Stamps.com. I feel like a next level podcaster when I say that. This summer is beginning to feel a little different. I have more options of things to do and enjoy outside, and oddly, I have more errands to run. What's with that? But with Stamps.com, I can skip the trip to the post office and save on postage. Woohoo! I am, as you know, a small business owner, and Stamps.com makes it so easy to ship prizes, swag, and giveaway books by the box full. And they offer deals I can't get anywhere else, like 40% off USPS and up to 66% off UPS shipping. I can use Switch and Save to compare carriers and find the best rates every time. Stop wasting time by going to the post office and go to Stamps.com instead. There's no risk. And with my promo code Sarah, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. There are no long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Sarah, S-A-R-A-H. That's Stamps.com, promo code Sarah. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. And now back to the rest of our conversation with Ariel Zebrak. One of the things you say in the book that I really like was the idea that guilty pleasure texts are like baths for the mind. Pleasure is productive because it produces itself. I I read a book to do another interview much earlier in the year. I think it was in January with uh, Dr. Devin Price, who wrote a book called Laziness Does Not Exist. 
So it's a massive skewering of productivity culture and the idea that laziness is a construct and it doesn't actually exist and that your, you know, your brain and your body are doing the best that they can to protect you when you are burning out. Um, it's a great book if you really want to dismantle the concept of laziness and productivity. But I was grabbed by your use of productive, that pleasure is productive because it produces itself. And again, we receive these coded messages, don't we, that we shouldn't even pursue or produce pleasure for ourselves. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this goes along with the idea of feeling like one needs to earn their spot on earth. Like yes. we we need to constantly be doing something to validate the fact that we exist and are here. Um, and like, I think we feel a lot of shame about, you know, even if our partner like catches us watching TV in the middle of the day, or like if you're lying in bed at night and you realize, oh my God, I didn't do anything on my to-do list today or I didn't get anything done today, mm-hmm. but you lived and like, maybe you went for a walk and maybe you took a bath and maybe you like experienced the bliss of being alive, which... I would argue is one of the most important things that anyone can be doing, especially in the and so past I think year. That, yeah, yeah, we like a lot of people miss their entire lives because they spend them trying to justify being alive by like making money and making things and making plans and trying to seem like they are busy. Yep, I feel like what your life is is what you spend your time doing. Right, and I would like to spend my time. Not completely. I'm not like a total hedonist, but like spending a lot of time doing things that bring me joy because I only get one chance of being alive. Yeah. You don't get a do-over. No. Nope. You also talk a lot about the concept of shame and guilt, which aren't quite exactly the same thing, but you point out that guilty pleasure and trash or trashy media is still coded femme Mm -hmm. because, you know, serious stuff is status. So of course, if status novels are white male novels, then anything that is female centered is the opposite of status, which would be shame and guilt. What, right. That was something you, that you tackled a lot in the introduction and you come back to in the, in the subsequent chapters. Was that section kind of cathartic to write? Oh my God, absolutely. Especially as somebody who <laughs> went through all of these major white male systems like publishing and um, academia. Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole like structure of higher education is built around white male ideas, schedules, desires, Mm -hmm. standards. Um, And, you know, I've in coming through those systems, I faced the same kind of sexism that anyone would have faced. Um, I remember very early on when I was thinking about applying to grad school, a male professor told me, I think your problem is going to be that you don't quite seem as smart as you are. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) What? And I really took that very uncritically and thought, oh my God, what am I doing? That makes me seem stupid. Is it how I talk? Is it how I dress? Is it what, you know, and and thought about how could I reform myself to be more smart seeming in order to be successful in this enterprise, which I want to undertake. And I think that, you know, it's, it's an almost shamefully long time before I realized there was, there's nothing I could do about that. That's just, he's a sexist. Yeah. I can't change the way that he thinks about me. That's never going to happen. So would you be willing to talk a little bit about the structure of the book and how you frame the concept of, you know, undermining the guilt of pleasure with three main concepts that you, that you, that you focus on in this book? Would you talk a little bit about those three concepts? I thought that was a really smart way to structure the entirety of your examination. I'm glad you saw it that way, because I really like the way that these chapters came about was through 
asking, I just asked myself crucial questions I wanted answered. And then I gave myself the task of researching them and thinking about them. And basically there's like a question that animates each chapter. So the first chapter is called rough sex. Yep. The question that I wanted answered there was why is the dark hero such a familiar figure and why do women who really strongly, and I've talked to so many women who, you know, agreed that this describes them, um, women who really identify as feminists have fantasies of like sexual domination mm-hmm. and like reading stories about sexual domination. And I actually, I didn't include this in the book, but as part of my research, I really did some exhaustive um, perusals of Goodreads and especially of Goodreads reviews of um, books that have been widely criticized for be- for containing rape scenes or containing very violent scenes. And a lot of women express this kind of bafflement at their own enjoyment of these titles. I was motivated by this question, like, why do women who would never want to experience any kind of violent sexual encounter in real life like fantasizing or reading about violent sexual encounters? Also in that research, I discovered that most um, Pornhub searches for rough sex are searched for by women, by people who identify as women. Interesting. Yeah. And then the next chapter is called Expensive Sheets. And these are questions also, you know, like Expensive Sheets in particular, a question I ask myself, which is like, why do people who are neither white nor rich love fictions about white rich people? Your whole like, examination why are they of so popular? All these rich white, rich white, rich white people narratives. The, mm-hmm. the, the listing of them, the minute they're listed under that title, I was like, oh God, yeah, that's a bunch. That's a whole bunch yeah. of, of different subgenres housed under rich white people stories. And why do we care about their lives? Oh yeah. Like why do we why do we want to spend time in that place? I mean, the more that I thought about that question, the more baffling it was to me. But I hope, I mean, I think that in the in the chapter I start to uncover some answers. And then likewise in saying yes to the dress, um, I was thinking about like what's with the enduring fascination with weddings when similar to rough sex, they I mean, every everything about the wedding, the Western wedding ceremony and wedding traditions is so mired in this history of women as property. Yeah, that it's like, why do we want? Why do we love watching weddings and reading about weddings and dress shopping? And again, why do so many of my feminist friends um, and very independent, empowered women get so wrapped up in the whole like wedding ethos when it's their time to get married? Oh yeah, I was interested in the bridezilla trope. Like, oh, yeah. there's just so much there that it seems contradictory. Like when our desires are at odds with our values. One of my favorite quotes from the book. I always like to share my favorite quotes. Um, this one is my probably my favorite because I have two teenage sons and all of them and my husband are super into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So mm. this was my favorite quote. Gossip Girl is an excellent example of a genre I call rich white people's fictions, uh, RWPFs. Books, movies, shows about very rich, very white people. They offer a fantasy of the power that super wealth and super whiteness confer. They're a form of escapism akin to superhero movies. They indulge us by imagining what it would be like to move through the world effortlessly to inhabit an experience so elevated from the experience of everyone else. Okay, so way to codify that into like 25 words. Awesome. (laughs) Thanks. That is probably one of my favorite sections because it's like, oh, yeah, of course. What we're what we're fantasizing about, what we're what we're generating, what is generating pleasure is the idea of moving through the world effortlessly without obstruction and without criticism and how powerful that fantasy is. 
Yeah. And I think that like a part of that too is the kinds of problems that show up in rich white people fictions, which are, it's, it's always like a tempest in a teacup, some very like big deal made out of some very small shakes issue. And I think it's very relaxing to consume media that makes a big deal out of small problems. Like it's the same reason why baking shows are so fun because you can totally lose your mind about being like, oh my God, she put in the wrong amount of butter. It's going to be a catastrophe. She didn't temper the chocolate. (laughs) Oh yeah. And that's always how like rich white people problems are, which is very relaxing to consume because you don't want to have to get into like the mire and the nitty gritty with someone else's bad day when you yourself have had a bad day. Oh, yeah. The absolute monstrosity problem that in the real world is not actually a problem. It, it, it's it's lovely when it happens to someone else on a screen and you don't have to worry mm. about it. And often they look really nice and they're dressed really lovely and everything is clean and lo- they all look cool. No one's sweaty. No one's yeah. ever sweaty well, or so that, I mean, one of the things that, that I noticed when I was writing the chapter and I write about this in the book is – like in rich white people fictions, people are constantly wearing white yes! and all of their stuff is white. Yes! And part of that is like the fantasy of, I mean, like I have this white sundress that I love oh, and yeah. I got it at a thrift shop and I'm always like, I'm going to look so great in this this summer, every summer. But there's never a day when I can wear it because I have a five-year-old son yep. and I clean my own house yep. and I bike everywhere that I go. Like if I could wear that for five minutes tops and then it would be totally destroyed. Oh yeah. So there's like this incredible fantasy of being like in like a flowing white blouse and white jeans. Yep. And you can go through your whole day like that because you're never doing anything that's going to compromise that outfit. Nope. Candace Bergen wearing crisp white shirts. You mentioned yeah. uh, Gatsby in a, in a linen suit that is never wrinkled. Like I even look at linen and it's wrinkled. I don't even have to take it off the hanger. <laughs> I just look at it. But yeah, wearing wearing white and never having to worry about pit stains or any kind of stains. And I don't know what it yeah. is, but like the upper slope of my chest, I just collect food stains there. It's like I for- didn't know her to how to eat correctly. It's just I just accept that that's part of my human body. It's messy. Right. That's why we wear prints and dark colors. Yep. That's right. <laughs> but that's you never you don't see those things in a rich white people fiction. No, they're all wearing white and they're never wrinkled or sweaty. <laughs> no. The other thing that's a real fantasy of rich white people fictions regarding wrinkles. And this is like my favorite part of Fifty Shades of Grey, the movie, is when someone has a closet where there's like three inches of space between each hung item. Oh, yeah. That's like a major ultimate fantasy for me. Oh, yeah. Like that the, you could see all the garments and you're not like, you're not doing the big like closet heave. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It looks like you. they live in a place that looks like a staged place. Yeah. <laughs> What are some of the 19th century writings that you love teaching? And do you have any recommendations for readers now? Sure. I feel like we've all been robbed a little bit because most of us are taught the 19th century fiction of white men, which is like Emerson, Hawthorne, Thoreau, Melville. And I like those works. This is not to say I don't enjoy reading those things. I do enjoy reading them and I teach them as well. Um, but there's a whole 19th century culture that doesn't really get taught in school that is just as fun as our culture now. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like one of my favorite examples of that is a work that only recently was republished in book form, um, by a woman named Eliza Potter. And it was published originally in 1859. It's called a hairdresser's experience in high life. And it's about this African-American woman who was the hairdresser to all of these Southern rich white ladies. And it's just this dishy, 
tell all about her experience with all of these debutantes. And she's a fabulous writer and it's so much fun. And it's like, it, it's basically the reality show version of 19th century literature. Like they had that too. And everybody read this thing and people were trying to piece together, like, who is it? Who's she talking about? Um, it's great. And students love reading it. And I assign it to them um, alongside, like I get them to make their own little fashion magazines about the 19th century by digging through archives and finding like pictures and how-to advice. So that one is super, super fun. I also really recommend, I write about this a lot in the book, The Hidden Hand yes, by E-D-E-N Southworth. Um, and everyone I've recommended this to has loved it. And my students always say it's their favorite book in the course. It's really long, which to me is always a, a benefit because yeah. you get to hang out with it for a very long time. And it's just like this epic romance um, about this heroine who we first encounter when she's a child dressed as a boy selling newspapers in New York City to avoid so that she could support herself and also to avoid being raped. So she realizes the necessity of dressing and living as a boy. And she's like this um, sort of fast talking, quick witted, uh, tomboyish kind of like Huckleberry Finnish character. Um, and she, along the lines of Punky Brewster or Little Orphan Annie, gets rescued by this curmudgeonly old white dude uh, who lives in a big mansion uh, out in the country. And he tries to, like, tame her and put her in fancy dresses and make her behave. But, of course, her outrageous behavior only succeeds in, like, opening his heart to the greater joys of the world. But in the meanwhile, she, like... Uh, gets into sword fights and gun battles and like As stops all of these villains, falls in love with like a robber who's kind of like a creature out of German folklore. <laughs> um, she saves like a very feminine, meek blonde girl from having to marry an evil rake. Um, and she has her own, I don't want to spoil it, but she has her own little love affair and happily ever after. Um, even though in my reading and in a lot of my students' readings, it would be more satisfying if she ended up with the villain because he's like a dark hero sexy type. He's also 6'8", which is something that I find really funny every time I read the book because that's super tall now, but it's like crazy tall in the 19th century. That's like and he's also tall. like constantly in disguises, which I don't think makes any sense for someone who is 6'8", but it's really fun. And it's just written... E.D.E.N. Southworth was the best-selling writer of the 19th century. Really? Um, she wrote, yeah, like anywhere between 50 to 70 novels. We don't really know how many novels she wrote um, because she published so many. And a lot of them were only published serially in periodicals. Um, and they're all about like intrigue and escapes and battles and romance. Um, and a lot of them are about men leaving their wives and women having to fend for themselves because that is indeed what happened to her in real life. Oh, um, Her husband went to Brazil in search of gold, abandoning her and her two young children. Ooh. And so she became a writer to support herself. And she ended up being like extremely successful and wealthy um, and a real celebrity in the 19th century, although she's very little known today. Wow. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. So you yes. must have really good time finding texts that you're going to incorporate in your classes because there's a lot of undiscovered and forgotten books oh. from that period of time that were as popular as romances are now. Yeah, 100%. And it worked in a very similar way, which is that um, readers had a lot of say in the community of women writers and popular fiction. So 
um, because the novels were published serially for the most part, these writers were had a huge correspondence career as well. And readers would write to them and they would alter what they were writing based on what readers were saying. They would communicate with readers. They would find out what kinds of stories readers were interested in reading and they would write those stories. Sounds like fanfic. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of it is fan fiction. And it was also, I mean, really, truly popular culture in the way that, you know, television was, or still kind of is, and internet culture is, because there was simultaneously this huge boost in literacy. Right. So there were far more people who could read. And these innovations in print technology that allowed print media to be disseminated really, really cheaply. Yeah. So people, everybody was reading. And there was like this huge demand for stories and stories written by women sold better than stories written by men. So, I mean, it seems crazy to us now, but if you were a woman who found yourself like with no way to support yourself in the 19th century, one of the first thoughts you would have is like, maybe I could write something for the newspapers because they were constantly looking for content. It was like, they were so content thirsty. Um, and the more they the more they produced, the more they could sell. It was like audiences were insatiable for these kinds of stories. Wow. So what are you working on right now? Hmm, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so I just finished writing a novel, actually. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Um, which is about that it's it's a it's a historical novel, but sort of mildly historical. It's set at the end of the 20th century. Um, and it's about that period between graduating from college and kind of like finding your way in the world. Um, The heroine is a young woman who has a lot of family problems and is sort of torn between her desire to establish herself and her relationship with her very troubled sister. So basically I wanted to write a novel that was like a happily ever after for a female relationship. So it's kind of about how the sisters find their way in the world um, and ultimately succeed despite all of this shit that's thrown in their path. Um, And then I'm also working on a nonfiction book that's called In the Image of Our Own Desires. Ooh, hello. And it's about consumer feminism and its roots in two 19th century, again, very popular ideological movements that we don't know much about because they were so female-centered. One is called New Thought and one is called Arts and Crafts. And they were basically philosophies that contradicted each other in a lot of ways, but served the same kind of social purpose which is helping women think through how to empower themselves through the mechanisms of corporate capitalism. Oh, relevant. So New Thought is like the movement that gave birth to um, the power of positive thinking or like the secret, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, It grew out of Christian science and it's this philosophy that you can control the world through controlling your thoughts. Hmm. Really popular and influential in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And it kind of became like this Ponzi scheme like thing, sort of like multi-level marketing companies that was totally engaged in by women and run by women, where you would pay a ton to be taught to be a new thought teacher. And then you would teach other new thought teachers. You would charge these exorbitant rates to teach other new thought teachers how to be new thought teachers. All of these aspects of our culture, I argue in this book, come from these women-led ideological movements that we don't tend to think about or write about. There's really only one really good history book about New Thought, even though it was like a huge part of culture in the time period. And I I think, and, and think I show in the book, carries on to today. Like it's a huge part of the history of America 
um, that I'm hoping gets more recognition as a result of the book. And then arts and crafts is on the other end, which is like, instead of thinking about how we can change the way that we think or behave to influence outcomes in the real world, arts and crafts is about making our environment different um, in order to facilitate a happier and more rewarding life. So you could think about it as like, new thought would be something like Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop or like yoga movements versus like Etsy and craftivism where there's like these two kind of factions of thinking within popular feminist culture. One that is more around like the inner life and one that is more around um, like physical practices. But both are about how consumption styles kind of offer this false promise of liberation. Wow. That is really, <laughs> really cool. So I always ask this question, what books are you reading that you would like to tell people about? So I just read Wild Rain by Beverly Jenkins. I don't know if you've read that one yet. So good. So yeah, good. it's amazing. And as someone who lives in Wyoming, I was like, yes. Um, because it, as you know, it's about a woman named Spring Lee who is a rancher in Wyoming and a hot journalist comes to town. Yep. And she takes care of him. And she's just this really awesome, compelling character um, who's a little bit hard to figure out. But I found their love story very compelling and believable. Oh, yeah. Um, and fun. And I love Bev Jenkins. I think she's a great writer. Wyoming is a, a bit different from New York. In some ways. Yeah, in a few <laughs> different ways. It's a phenomenal change. And in fact, I before I moved here, I had only ever lived in major cities. Oh, wow. In my whole life. So it was huge. That is a big change. I really love it here. Part of the reason I love it here is because it's almost always sunny. Mm. And another reason I love it here is that it's just so easy to be out in these extremely gorgeous landscapes. Like I can yes. drive for 20 minutes and go on a hike that in my previous life would only be accessible via like a two week long vacation yeah. where I removed myself to an area of such extreme beauty. So I've noticed that it's, it just changes my mute, my mood hugely to be able to experience those kinds of environments yeah. with great regularity. Oh yeah. That I like. And I also live in like a very cool, small university town full of lovely, thoughtful people. Yep. Um, and I also notice so, yeah, a cultural been... change when you move from a place like New York to a place where if you are dumb, the land will kill you. It, cre yeah. it creates a different cultural uh, community. 100%. It's a completely different community environment when even if you really, really dislike that person, if you see them in danger, you know that they will die if you don't help them. It creates a different sense of community. That is so true. And I kept, when I moved here and I first made that realization, I kept going around telling everybody like, now I really understand Willa Caver. Yeah. <laughs> because, <laughs> because before I was like, why is everyone being so mean about all this stuff? And I'm like, they're mean because these people will die. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Stakes are high people. Yeah. Get it together. Are there any other books you want to mention? Yes. So I just also finished reading a brand new book called Lizzie and Dante by Mary Bly which is a real fantasy for me also, not because it's set in Wyoming, but because it is about a Shakespeare professor who gets into this like wildly fabulous romance with an Italian man on the Isle of Alba. Um, and it has all of this like beachy, scenic, atmospheric stuff and another just like really charming and super convincing love story. 
So that was fun. Um, and I'm also reading a not quite so new book, but one that's been on my list for a while that I'm just loving the writing style of, which is Sweet Bitter by Stephanie Dandler mm-hmm. um, about her time working in the restaurant industry. Um, and her pro style is just like intoxicating. Those are the things that I have just engaged with beyond the flipping the murder house show. Right. <laughs> And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you again to Ariel Seabrack for sending me a copy of her book and hanging out with me to discuss everything inside it. Of course, I will have links to Avidly Reads Guilty Pleasures and all the other books we talked about in the show notes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. You can also find Ariel Zebrak, her CV and links to all of her writing at arielzebrack.com. And of course, that link will be in the show notes as well. Thank you to Garlic Knitter for transcribing this episode. Thank you to the cat for stopping the loud munching in his food bowl, which is, of course, next to my microphone. And thank you for listening. I end with a terrible joke because that's how we do things here. And I love sharing horrible jokes. So here's another one. If H2O is on the inside of a fire hydrant, what's on the outside? Well, if H2O is on the inside of the fire hydrant, what's on the outside would be canine pee. <laughs> This joke is brought to you by my dogs who have their walk very early in the morning because it is so hot and have a favorite fire hydrant. <laughs> K9P. On behalf of everyone here, we wish you the very best of reading. Have a wonderful weekend and we'll be back here next week. Smart Podcast Trashy Books is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more outstanding podcasts to subscribe to at frolic.media slash podcasts.